Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 107, and today's guest is Christine Schindler, co-founder and CEO at PathSpot. Even from an early age, Christine is the type of person who has always tried to connect the dots and come up with solutions. Whether it was figuring out how to turn off our lights without having to get out of bed as a child, or recognizing the need to help promote STEM education and engineering careers for girls, or building technology that helps protect us from foodborne illnesses, there's no doubt that she is a problem solver who takes action. Her current company, PathSpot, is working to address the 48 million cases of foodborne illnesses a year. The company's hand scanner ensures that food handling team members are in compliance for a positive food sanitation culture. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like Christine's background and her experience across multiple areas, what led her down the path of starting Girls Engineering Change, all the details on PathSpot and how their product works, advice for founders on getting the most out of their Techstars experience, how to determine whether or not to accept advice from mentors, plus a lot more. Okay, quick side note, did you know that we have a YouTube channel? We started it earlier this year and it is rapidly growing with lots and lots of great content from our podcast interviews and video series. So go to youtube.com backslash VentureFizz to subscribe so you don't miss out. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Christine. Christine, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. So, Christine, I was uh, impressed with your background. So, you, uh, you know, as it seems like you've been a problem solver since day one. Like, that's something kind of how your mind works and operates, uh, even going back to when you were a child, right? Yeah, I definitely had a ton of support from my family and my parents as a child. And I was always taught to think of how I could connect the things that I was seeing in the world um, to be able to solve problems. Uh, my siblings remember me being, uh, you know, just 10 years old and building a system where we could turn the lights on and off from our beds um, because we didn't want to have to walk over to the light switch in the morning. And even little things like that, I was always tinkering, always trying to create solutions to things I saw. And as I continued to grow and notice so many problems in the world, I so became you were, really happy. you were building in the connected home before that was even like happening? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Using some yarn. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> the first connections. Um, but, you know, as I started seeing that the problems uh, that I saw in life became bigger, you know, I just already had that background of being able to put the dots between those solutions and, and try to overcome them with different types of products. Now, why did you decide to attend Duke? And, and there, I believe you studied biomedical engineering. I was really interested in how I could use, I was always liked, you know, math and science, and I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do um, when I was in high school, but I was really drawn to a lot of the programs Duke offered for being able to make an impact. Um, they had a lot of offerings around the use of the things that you were learning in school through volunteer work and outreach and international development work. And all of that was really exciting to me. Um, I kind of became interested in biomedical engineering because I had influences in my family who are engineers and who are doctors. And I was always sitting at the table discussing different issues and how technology could be used in healthcare. And that made me really excited about um, the offering of biomedical engineering, which Duke had a phenomenal program for. Um, so that kind of is what got me started there. And, and when I was taking my entry level 
classes as a first year student, um, I got involved in the global health curriculum that they offered. And that also um, became a huge aspect of my college experience because I was able to see the impact that engineering was having on healthcare problems across the world. And, and what was some of the experience that you had, like your you know, research fellow uh, during this period of time? So what were you actually working on? Yeah, so I worked internationally um, in hospitals in Tanzania, and I was working on how to use different medical technologies and make them applicable to situations in the developing world. Um, we would show up at different hospitals and be based in different areas and regions, mostly around Mount Kilimanjaro. And I would take technology that they had there that didn't work for their applications. Maybe the plug didn't operate correctly, or maybe there was no instructions to the products that they had been donated, or the instructions were written in Chinese. Um, so I started working on as a biomedical technician on their different projects. And um, that made me really interested in how we could create new technology-based solutions that would fill gaps um, in ways that would work in the developing world. I mean, even the fact that they didn't have temperature control in any of their hospital rooms meant that many systems that we operate with in, um, with great success here in the United States would never work uh, because you never knew what temperature it was going to be um, in their different hospital settings. And I started working on a project for a research team at Duke um, where I did my fellowship and was a, a national engineering um, grand challenge scholar uh, through a lab that was working on the use of light and optics to be able to detect for, for breast and cervical cancer with a specific application for the developing world. So I was working um, back and forth between international um, hospitals as well as at Duke's Medical Center and getting to see the intersection of how this product development really was working to be able to be applicable to all these different settings. Um, and it was an incredible experience. And, I mean, you are a problem solver and you're also somebody that when you see something, you don't just kind of like let it be, you actually take action. And another great example of that is you started an organization called Girls Engineering Change. So what led you down the path of starting that and you know, what, what does that become? Yeah, so when I was taking all these classes at Duke, um, I noticed that there was this gap in that my global health courses were talking all about the impact of engineering and the way that technology was making so many, uh, so, such a difference for people all over the world. Um, however, there were no other engineers in those global health courses and they were predominantly female in, in makeup. And in my engineering courses, you know, it was very much intro math, intro computer science, intro engineering, and intro physics. There was no talk in the beginning stages about the application of what we were learning and um, you know, definitely a broader disparity in terms of uh, women who were in those courses. And I was talking to so many of my friends and they were saying, you know, well, I don't know if I'm gonna stay in engineering because I don't really see the impact and I don't really know what I'm working towards and it's really hard. And um, I started doing some research and I found that especially younger women um, are so interested in how they can make an impact in the world through their work. And I felt like there was this gap in that 
you know, there were so many engineering curriculums out there, but there weren't any that were targeted to young girls and teaching them about difference they could make through engineering. Girls were always like, oh, well, you know, engineering is building bridges, building cars, not really what I'm interested in. No one was talking about these things in my global health courses of like building limbs for people or, you know, creating cancer detection tools for women in the developing world. Um, that wasn't the narrative around it. And so I felt like that was something that I was seeing and I just, no one else was doing it. And so I thought, you know, why not uh, try to start something around that? And what Girls Engineering Change does is we bring girls onto college campuses and we have them build um, and develop tools that actually get donated somewhere in the world so they can immediately see the impact of engineering. So they build solar powered USB chargers that we donate to disaster relief settings. They build electrocardiogram simulators for doctors and nurses in the developing world. And in just a two hour session, we're teaching them by actually doing it that engineers make a difference. And so then we encourage them to think about, you know, what could you do with engineering if you devoted your life to this? And I'm curious, like, since you're so kind of in, in the weeds of, of um, you know, STEM education, like, are, are we making any progress as it relates to women in STEM education and careers? I think that it is phenomenal, the amount of support that has grown, even in, you know, the past 10 years towards this type of initiative. Like, when I started working um, on Girls Engineering Change, there was hardly anyone doing anything around girls and engineering and STEM and that, that whole field has really exploded. I mean, people have really recognized that girls, um, if we're not you know, starting young and getting them excited about these different challenges and opportunities, we're also, you know, not everyone who goes through our curriculum by any means will become an engineer. Um, but we want to create that support mechanism because when I was in high school saying, I wanna be an engineer, all my friends were like, that's so lame. That's kind of a guy thing. You're really gonna build bridges and cars, but you're creative. So I feel like, you know, a, a lot of it is just about changing the narrative and getting people to understand that this is a really exciting opportunity so they can support their friends when they say, I want to be an engineer. Um, and I think that there's a lot of, that's been done around that and that people are really pushing forward while the numbers um, are still uh, less than ideal uh, in terms of the breakdown of women and, and men in these fields, I think that I'm really excited to see what the impact of all these different organizations, Girls Engineering Change included, um, starts to show fruition in the coming years. Well, I have two little girls and I'm grateful for the organizations that you've established and this, the, the, the amount of noise that is finally happening out there, it's needed. Uh, and I'm fortunate to live in a community where there's an amazing STEM school uh, for high school. And I, I met one of the students, uh, a, a female, and like she was focused on building prosthetic legs for dogs. And, and, she had, and she had a prototype and it's, it's, I was just blown away. That is awesome. Exactly. And that's a real problem that I'm sure she witnessed in her community and then felt like she had the tools to go build. And that's really, you know, the mission behind Girls Engineering Change, getting them to think about those problems. And that's also what made me start it. I saw a problem that there was a gap and that I didn't have the support when I was, um, you know, in high school from my peers, and I wanted to try to re re reverse that narrative. So how did you get uh, involved with the Clean Global Initiative? So I applied to be a part of the Clinton Global Initiative University program um, when I had literally just an idea for Girls Engineering Change. I wondered if it would be, it was something where everyone who applies to their program applies with a, a concept um, of how to make the world a better place. And 
that was really how I got started. And, and I had so much support from their organization on how to actually start something from scratch because as a first year student balancing an engineering curriculum and a lot of other, you know, university commitments, I was like, how do I, I have this idea. I think it should exist in the world. What do I do? So I applied with an idea and they brought together, you know, hundreds of students from literally across the world, all with ideas and gave us support and mentoring and networks. I stayed involved with the organization as we grew um, Girls Engineering Change. And I'm really fortunate that I'm still very involved with them and I'm able to serve as a, as a mentor now to students with ideas um, who come from all walks of life and all different backgrounds, which is really exciting. So it's really phenomenal that organizations like that exist to provide the support and encouragement to go into starting something because it's kind of a black box, especially when you have an idea and, and no idea how to start it. And um, the fact that I had started Girls Engineering Change made it a lot easier to make the leap and quit my job and start PathSpot because I had seen a concept in my head become a reality. And now GEC is a national nonprofit organization. We have chapters across the country. We have thousands of girls who go through our curriculums every single month. And so knowing that that was possible from something that was just an idea um, made it more feasible to you know make the leap when I had the idea behind PathSpot. And I guess that's a good segue of, uh, so, cause you did have uh, a couple of years at Cigna where, you know, you were, you know, I guess working in more of a, a corporate type of role. So what, what were you doing there? And what was that moment that led you down the path of, I, I need to start a company and that being PathSpot? Yeah, I had a great experience working there, uh, learning. I was in their innovation and early career development program. When I got out of school, you know, I had done all this different lab work and research. And initially I thought, you know, I just want to go immediately and, and get my PhD. I loved the work I was doing. I just wanted to keep building solutions. And I, I, I still have a, a real passion for research and that type of work. Um, because it's exactly, you know, it's, it's diving into complex problems that solutions don't exist for yet and creating them. But I really wanted to understand how healthcare systems um, and how healthcare worked on a broader level um, so that I could bring that back to research or a smaller company. And I was really interested in working for a healthcare organization like Cigna that touched so many pieces of a healthcare journey from the patient to the providers, um, all the way through the entire system. And so I joined their um, early career development program and worked on their innovation team. And I was working on preventative healthcare tools and uh, different types of programs that could help people stay healthier or access healthcare throughout their entire process. And I also had an opportunity to work on their um, partnerships and M&A team. So I worked with startups from a very different angle, um, seeing if they were a good fit for a partnership perspective um, or to work together on work they were doing. And that was a great experience as well to understand how larger companies work with smaller companies. And um, from the perspective of starting this company, you know, same thing with Girls Engineering Change. I never had an intention of starting Girls Engineering Change or this, you know, it's exactly the same story where I kept seeing this problem. And you mentioned this earlier, but it's definitely how I feel when I see a problem. It really gnaws at me, especially if I can make it, if I know I can fix it. Um, it really, when I have an idea and I start seeing those dots connect, I'm like, oh, I think I can build a solution to this. I wonder why no one else has. And 
if I can do it, I feel a responsibility towards that. And that's kind of what happened with Passbot. I really enjoyed my work. I was um, getting some great exposure and opportunities and felt like we were really making an impact on my team there. But I just kept seeing these issues of foodborne illness pop up on the news every single day. I mean, and people getting incredibly sick, hospitalizations, even deaths from these different illnesses in the United States. And when I started diving deeper into those numbers, you know, and realized that half of them were directly the result of poor hand washing practices, um, I wondered why no one had created a solution that could instantly look for these different types of contaminants in the restaurant space. Um, and uh, as I dug deeper and, and couldn't find any anything, I, originally I thought, oh, maybe this would be an interesting project for girls at Girls Engineering Change to work on. Um, because we are always looking for new things that tied to things they were seeing in the news. For example, every time there's a natural disaster, we always work on natural disaster support um, technologies like solar powered USB chargers that we can donate so they can point to the TV and say, hey, you know, I built something that helped those people. It really ties everything together for them. And because this was such a hot topic, I wondered if there was a company we could partner with that was doing something in foodborne illness detection from a GEC perspective. But, you know, as you can imagine now, there was no one doing anything on instant detection of foodborne illness. And that made me super curious. And my co-founder, who had also worked with on Girls Engineering Change, we were kind of like, I feel like we could build this. You know, I feel like we could use our spectroscopy backgrounds to make it. Let's just see. And so we went to a radio shack going out of business sale. We bought a lot of electronic <laughs> components. We started iterating algorithms. And once we figured out that we could look for the core contaminants behind E. coli, salmonella, neurovirus, hepatitis A, listeria, all those things that we were seeing on TV, we felt like we had to go for it. So, okay, so can you go a little bit deeper? So you went to Radio Shack, you got some components, you started tweaking algorithms, but like, how did you like get to a prototype where you're like, okay, this is actually starting to work. And then how did you go about manufacturing that? Because it's, it's not an easy thing to do when you have a piece of hardware and software. Definitely not an easy thing to do. And we're, so we work on it every day. Um, so when we started and we just had a bunch of wires taped to a dinner plate, the first thing we really wanted to understand was, you know, would customers really want this and in what form? You know, would they want to scan hands? Do they want to scan plates? Do they want to scan um, surfaces? Do they want to walk around with it and do spontaneous checks? Like, what does this even look like? Neither of us, both of us were very focused in the healthcare space and neither of us had experience working in the food service. So we just started going door to door. I mean, we spent, we are still, you know, working and we would spend our nights and weekends going door to door asking people, hey, what do you think? We're trying to build something around foodborne illness, detect for these things. And people told us that they'd been waiting 10 years for this to exist. So we um, sold my car and bought a 3D printer. And with that, we would iterate different versions of the product every single day. So first we build a handheld one and we just go out to people and be like, we have this handheld device. And they'd be like, I don't really want it to be handheld. I wish it mounted on the wall. We'd stay up all night, 3D print a new one, show up the next day. Hey, it mounts on the wall. This is what it looks like now. We had the core framework. So it was all about what does this, what, what's the need in the locations? And we just did hundreds of customer interviews every day. We'd, and then we'd show up with new versions um, and new product designs. And we built thousands of different prototypes during that process where we just continually shifted a little bit or changed it until we got to the version that people started saying, yeah, no, that's what I'm interested in. That's, that's what I would want it to look like. And at what point did you decide to do this full time? Like leave you know, the, the previous job at Cigna? 
as soon as people started saying, you know, I've been waiting 10 years for this to exist and no one else is doing it, you know, this is the number one thing that keeps me up at night as a business owner in this space. When we heard that constantly for every single person we talked to, we realized that we just had to go all in and, and give it our best shot. And when you were getting these customer interviews and the feedback from them, was it obvious that this is something that they were going to pay for as well? Because obviously it's good to have a, you're solving a problem, but not all problems deserve the money that goes out of their pocket to pay for it to solve that problem. I think what was helpful in that process is, you know, as many of these big outbreaks were being featured on TV, it was becoming really apparent the impact that that was having on the economy of these different companies. Um, and, you know, there is such a loss of customer from these major sources of contamination. And so the cost of that was really top of mind for everyone we talked to. They didn't want to be one of those groups that were featured. And because these groups were losing billions of dollars from one outbreak, the average cost of just one person getting sick is $75,000, not including damage to the brand. Um, you know, when we were looking at what to price this at, everyone was just telling us, you know, well, I'll do whatever I can to stop these problems from happening. You know, this needs to exist. And so I think that we didn't know yet what people would pay um, or what the pricing structure would look like. But in terms of like whether or not to push forward with development, we were seeing like the the downside of not doing it from an economic perspective. And, and that was really encouraging to, to keep working towards it. So where's your business now? Like what, what how does the product actually work? Um, now, how did you decide to price it and, and get some of those early adopter customers? Yeah, so um, the product now is a kiosk style device. It mounts on the wall next to hand washing sinks. And after employees wash their hands, they just put them under the device, flip them over, and there's a tablet inside the product that lights up green, you're all clear, or red, you just need to rewash. Um, and then they have two minutes to rewash their hands and rescan. And if they don't come back and and rescan within those two minutes, we alert management that there's been a breach in contamination. Um, we take all the data from those scans and we have a 24 seven data dashboard that we give to our customers so they can see who's scanning and when and how effectively, um, and they can view trends across all their different locations and see the effectiveness of hand washing or if there's any outliers, if anyone needs to go through um, a retraining process and they can really use that data to customize trainings and have control over their sanitation procedures and use it to create a really positive culture around food safety in the establishments. And so, what's the, like what's the common like how do they screw up washing their hands like is it just they're not doing it long enough thorough enough or uh, not using soap I don't know like what's what's the common issues of that you see companies deal with? Yeah so according to the CDC um, you have to wash your hands for a full 20 seconds with soap and water to get rid of all the contamination that's present. And for context, 20 seconds is singing happy birthday all the way through twice. So how many people sing happy birthday all the way through twice when they wash their hands? Sometimes I do it when I'm in the restroom, just as a test. I'm sitting there washing my hands. Every single person has gone to the bathroom, fixed their hair, you know, fixed their makeup. They've washed their hands. They're looking at me like, why is this girl still washing her hands? But that's what's really necessary to get rid of the full amount of contamination. So what our product really does is close that gap and make sure that people are washing their hands effectively. Um, when we see that customers 
fail a handstand, they actually start washing their hands more frequently and their contamination rates definitely go down over time because they're like, I don't want these contaminants on my hands. That's a danger to me and to my family. I had no idea that I was potentially spreading E. coli. Um, and it's just because it's invisible. You can't see it, you can't smell it, you have no idea that it's there. And so this extra check just allows you to make sure that your hands are, are fully clean. And then as far as the, how did you de uh, decide on pricing and then you know, actually get customers to sign on and, and implement the product? So one of the best parts about doing all those customer interviews in the beginning was that that's how we got our first customers. I mean, these groups that we are going to every day with a new version of our product, taking their feedback and incorporating it in, right? By the end of working with us and seeing us do that for three months, I mean, they knew that we were going to be 100% there for them in this journey. We had literally built the product around their feedback. So there was no sales cycle with those early customers um, because as soon as they were ready, as soon as they said it looks good, we put it on their wall um, that same day and we started getting feedback on those versions actually in the store. And so that's how we really got our first buy-in from customers was that these restaurant owners were so committed to food safety. Um, they were, they were so committed to food safety that they were willing to continuously give us feedback and advice and insights and work with us as we built the product for them because they needed it and they knew they needed it and they wanted someone to do this with them. So those early partners, I mean, were invaluable because they helped us really create it from the ground up and then ended up, you know, being incredible customers because now we can work with them and they give us continuous advice of, you know, hey, here's a new feature that I'd really like to see. Like, can we develop that? And so it's it's been great to be able to work with them. So those early customers really helped us to develop the pricing model. And because there's been a lot of innovation in the restaurant, back of house technology space, we had many other um, groups that were working on totally different technologies, but we could utilize the pricing models that they'd incorporated. Um, for example, new types of point of sale systems or check-in softwares and we could um, kind of build off of the systems that they built in terms of pricing to develop it for PathSpot. Got it. Okay. Now, how did you go about funding your business? Um, I, I love the story you told about selling your car to buy a 3D printer, which is just, I, I love stuff like that. Uh, but so, so have you, how have you funded the business since then? So a lot of how we got involved with different people that are on our cap table now was through accelerator programs. Um, we were a part of the Venture for America accelerator program and the Techstars accelerator program. And those networks of people were completely the most valuable piece to building our business in the beginning. I mean, my co-founder and I had limited experience. We were engineers. We knew we built the product, but we didn't know how to scale a business or how to structure financing rounds. And the mentorship that we received through those programs was so uh, impactful because it helped us to be able to understand how to think about our company from that perspective and how to get the correct resources behind building it. So we went through the fundraising um, seed round process uh, last year, and we were able to bring on an incredible team of investors um, and venture capital groups that we really trusted. And as I was going through that process of evaluating who the right people were to help us build PathSpot, we really wanted a group of investors who were gonna be on our team. 
So we were looking for people who had different areas of expertise that would help us build our business. Funds that had a deep experience in scaling hardware um, systems, funds that had a deep experience in scaling software systems because we had both, um, funds that had a real experience in working with the medical space or with the food space. Um, and those are really our, our targets was bringing on people with a lot of different areas of expertise that we could use to build our team. And I rely on them constantly for their advice and guidance as we make decisions. So um, I've been really excited uh, by the investors that we have on board. Now, you mentioned that you went through Techstars. Um, so if, if a company or an entrepreneur is accepted into the program, what advice would you give to other founders on how to get the most out of the, the Techstars experience? Techstars is definitely such a phenomenal experience, especially if your business is at a point you're ready to get the most out of it. Um, and I mean, we literally lived there. We never left. We were like, we are in this program for three months and there are so many resources at our fingertips. All we want is to get every single second out of it. Um, and so we were always like, just there so early and so late into the night, may have stayed there overnight a few times um, so that we could utilize those resources. And I think um, when I, talk to a lot of people about applying for Techstars, a lot of it is around if your business is in a point where you can really focus on that. You know, if where you're at in the company is that you need to go underwater and just focus on scaling the product, then Techstars might not be the best, it might be not be the best time to join Techstars. And because there's so many programs, you know, you can almost always find one that fits the time when you have that capacity to throw yourself into the networking, the mentorship opportunities. I mean, at the end of the program, um, our directors said, you know, pick three mentors who you met with, you know, five or more times that were really invaluable to you so that we can give them a huge thank you. And my co-founder and I had to make a list of 60 um, <laughs> because we had so many people, you know, we had so many people that we met with more than five times that were so helpful. Um, and I think, you know, being able to really dive in and build those relationships, those are still the people that I call and work with as we work through these different um, aspects and really also having the community from the other from the other cohort members I think is so critical I mean there are so many times in the middle of the night when we call each other up and um, help each other think through problems or just say like hey you know you're not in this alone it can definitely be isolating working on this type of thing 24-7 um, and so having others to support you on that journey is I think a really big value that that Techstars provides. So that you definitely there's a lot of mentors that are willing to give their time and uh, advice, which is phenomenal. But uh, like, how did you know how to sort through the advice? Like sometimes the advice is applicable for your business and like a dead on fit of what you needed. And sometimes maybe, you know, not so much. So how, did, how were you able to decipher between, uh, you know, the different points of advice you were getting? I think a lot of it um, in the end is taking all the different advice that you see and trying to aggregate it and understand. I mean, I'm an engineer, so a lot of times we'd like type all the advice and then kind of data pool it and say, okay, like, well, for what this piece of the business is, this person is the most expertise or senior and being able to provide that or they've done it before. So a lot of it was matching um, 
where the advice was coming from and what the expertise was of those different groups and taking all of that into account. I actually love getting conflicting advice because it helps me think through what the pros and the cons are. Like I encourage our investors to like argue opposite sides of the table for decisions because there's multiple ways to look at everything. And so I, I really appreciated when we get 10 pieces of pieces of advice on one topic and they were completely different um, because it helped me to make the most informed decision around and, and consider all the different pros and cons and other options that were available. Um, and sometimes at the end of it, you just have to kind of trust your gut, pick a pick one one direction and go with it and be willing to potentially come back. I mean, that definitely happened to us through the program. We'd be like, all right, it's this, we're going with it. We communicate to the mentors that gave us other advice. Hey, unfortunately, we decided to go with a different direction. And then we'd realize that we didn't want to go with that direction. And we'd go back to those first mentors that gave us support and say, hey, you were right, you know, can you now help us think through the other option that didn't work out the way that we expected it to. I think that a lot of transparency in that mentorship process um, helped us keep really good relationships. Um, and then, you know, people are always excited to jump back on board if you decide that you're going in a different direction. So as you've been growing past spot and, you know, from the early days to where you are now and the traction you've gotten, like what's been like the hardest part of building a company that you weren't necessarily aware of? I feel like every minute there's a new hard part <laughs> that I wasn't aware of. I'm like, oh, that's a surprise. <laughs> um, no, I, I definitely think there's there's a lot of different pieces that change on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think that's part of what makes it um, so exhilarating uh, and also terrifying in different moments. Uh, and I think what, what it comes down to is that, you know, I care about this so much. I really believe in this idea and you have to really realize that you're not going to know the right path. The whole reason why it's hard, but also why it's exciting is that no one else has done it before um, or done your specific thing before. And you can get all the incredible advice from other entrepreneurs, but in the end of the day, it's, it's, it's your business and you have to make those decisions and make those calls and no one's going to know it as well as you do. And sometimes like, I don't think I realized the magnitude of what that felt like to realize that in the end of the day, you know, I was going to make the decision that pointed the company in one direction or in the other. Um, and I'm why I feel grateful to have such an incredible team behind me and as well as a, a great group of investors and mentors. But, you know, they're all kind of like, OK, but it's your call. And I think making those calls is really exciting, but also definitely challenging because it's a lot of responsibility. And I really believe that, you know, I need to work every single day to continue earning that responsibility um, and to continue. I tell my team this, I'm like, I'm interviewing for my job every single day from you, from our investors, you know, you're trusting me to push this forward. And I take that really seriously. Um, but that's also hard. <laughs> There's not always a right answer in front of you. And, and how are you managing your time? Like, that's a tricky thing too, because you're, you know, product development, there's sales, there's operations, there's things that are in the weeds of the business. There's things that are strategic that push the ball forward. So like, how do you manage your time? I mean, I could always be better at managing my time. <laughs> One of the things that our team does every morning is, you know, we all make a list of the top things that we have to get done that day, no matter what. Um, and we also weekly make a list of like, what are the big rocks that we have to hit um, a strategy that we learned through our time in Techstars. So every day our tasks around are what, is going to 
hit that thing that we needed to hit this week. And there's a lot of noise that comes into the day. And some of it is good things that I want to do or, or can be really helpful as well. And I try to make time for that when I can, but only when those primary things are being hit. Um, and only when I know that I have enough capacity to do the things that have to be done to move the business forward. And I think that what I had to realize is that sometimes that means like, you know, canceling on something or saying really transparently, you know, unfortunately this is not the priority for the business right now. And because we have too much going on on the other side, I can't make time for this in this moment. Um, and then, you know, trying to reschedule and shift priorities and that goal setting has been really helpful for, for me and my team as we um, try to make sure that we are hitting all the things we absolutely have to, because sometimes you can't even fit that into a day. <laughs> yeah. So it sounds like you've learned how to say no, which is a great trait. I mean, you can't say yes to everything, even though you want to, but uh, you have to do what's right for your business and what's right for that day. Absolutely. So uh, you're heads down building a company, but uh, when, when you do have time outside of work, what do you like to do? I'm really close to my family and we're scattered uh, across the country. I'm the oldest of four and all of my siblings are amazing and I really enjoy spending time with them. So I love getting to travel and to visit their cities and um, see different, uh, different parts of the world through visiting family and friends is um, one of my favorite things to do outside of work. Oh, that's so awesome. Well, Christine, thanks so much for taking the time for you know sharing all the great things that you've accomplished already throughout your career, and of course, all the great things you're doing with your your company, Passbot, which you know it's not uh, only going to be a meaningful business, but obviously it's a huge impact to us as consumers of hopefully uh, eating food that's uh, that that's safe. Absolutely, and one day, you know, in our future roadmaps, we want to build one that you could even have in your own home or attached to your smartphone. So stay tuned for that in the future. That is a need, yes. <laughs> All right, Christine, thanks again for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.